it is really neat to be here. Uh, I was all, all kind of taken off guard with some of all the connections here, but it's so good to be with you today. I do want you to know that I've been treated very well. Uh, so appreciate the Parkinson's for helping me to have a nice place to stay, comfortable. They leave me alone when I need to be alone, and they're happy to entertain whenever I want to come up and talk. So we've spent some hours together, and I've appreciated their hospitality. Really good to be among you. I thought Utah was salt flats and desert till I got here. Beautiful place, and very thankful for the opportunity. Pastor Greg and Danielle and family are dear friends, and I'm very thankful to see them. It's been a long time. Um, I'd like to turn our attention back to the scripture for a moment. This is an account of how God's people were looking for his direction following a general command that said, go evangelize the nations. And in their attempt to do so, they would find themselves in several places that the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ would prohibit them from going forward. And in that journey, they found themselves at a place where Paul received more specific revelation and direction about where God wanted him to be. In fact, this Macedonian vision that he has is an instruction for him to go over to Philippi and help us, whoever was inviting him. But if you notice, there's actually a change in the language from he and they to we when they embark on the journey because that's when Luke joins them and becomes part of the party as they go forward into Macedonia, find themselves with all the promise of a church plant that starts with a group of women by the river. Probably not ideal in the minds of a, a specialist who says, here's what you do to succeed in church planting, but this is how God opened the door to Philippi and a church and a letter to a church that gives us all these great treasures about Christ. You know, the uh, exaltation of Christ, his humiliation and his exaltation in this epistle to the Philippian church. It's just beautiful. But I thought with what uh, Pastor Baker wanted me to share with you, that I would parallel that with really our own life's experiences. We are called to a journey of obedience to God that begins with a very general truth from his word. We're to do what? Go, disciple the nations. And we do that by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And that's a general command for all of us, no matter who we are, as followers of Christ. And maybe that doesn't mean go to Ghana. Maybe that just means go next door, right? But that's our call. Now, I want to kind of parallel that with some of my own experiences. So really what Pastor Baker wanted me to share was what God's called us to and why we feel compelled to do it and kind of the journey of a lifetime in a way. I'm starting to be the old guy. In fact, I was actually specifically invited to a missions conference because they needed an old guy. I was flattered. <laughs> but they're looking for wisdom. And I would say this, yeah, I've made enough mistakes in life that I think I can share with you what not to do. And if you're wiser than I was, you'll listen. 
but likely, <laughs> I think uh, you almost have to make the mistakes yourself. But in the journey, God's been in charge and in control, and I would uh, welcome the opportunity to share things I've learned and uh, God's direction in our ministry and maybe even help you understand what might be going on in your own life. So if we could, I'd like to ask the Lord to direct our thoughts and, and uh, please be assured I'd rather stand behind a pulpit and talk about Jesus all the time because I'm much more comfortable with that, but I'm trying to keep my friendship with your pastor, so I'm listening to him. <laughs> anyway, I, I, do, I do value the opportunity, Greg, your dear friend. Uh, Lord, we, we all need direction in our lives and need to be able to see what you're doing or at least look back on what you've done. Pray that you'll help in what I share to maybe be contagious for someone's own calling. And just ask that you'll be glorified, that whatever has happened in our lives certainly is a result of your kindness, grace, and glory. And I confess I haven't brought anything to the cross other than my sin that made it necessary. None of us have. We ask for Jesus to be lifted up today. In all his glory, may you receive the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this to me is a fun visit because my wife and I have been called to Bibles International, and that was a later thing in life. We were actually getting to the point where we were thinking about, you know, retiring, getting a nice little home, maybe a small town church, prop our feet up on the front porch, drink iced tea, gossip about the neighbors, whatever else people do. Just enjoy, and really God had other plans for us, and so we found ourselves uh, married <laughs> pretty early on. God gave us some children. Uh, we have, this was 86 when we were married, and the children God gave us are next to my wife. That's me, Terry, my dear wife. Uh, this is probably 10 years old. Jason, our eldest son. The one next to him is Jonathan, our youngest son, and the one next to him is Joshua, the second born, and then Rachel, our third born, my daughter, the one whom I've been accused of spoiling. So, uh, we have a son-in-law, Guillermo Estrada, and he and Rachel have given us these beautiful grandchildren, Malachi and Ezra and now Lucas, and he, they're just beautiful little people. And Dad's a Jayhawks fan, as you might guess. And there are his children. And he's such a good daddy. I'm so thankful. I see how God led them together. And I could tell the story of how I was convinced that God was overseeing this. And uh, he was, he's a godly young man. Prayed for a year to date my daughter. Probably needed it. She was a high-maintenance case. <laughs> <laughs> But honestly, uh, he's, he adores her. He's a good daddy. He's, I could have learned so much from him in what a good daddy he is. And all these boys have their own little toolbox. And when they go wash the car, they're out in the driveway with him washing their little toy cars. And he's just 
awesome. <laughs> I came to Heart of America Theological Seminary in 99. There were a lot of great guys that I had the chance of working with and mentoring and uh, learning from. And I got to serve, I got to marry young, and I got to marry him old. And at one point, whoops, <laughs> where'd that come from? At one point, this guy, and for whatever reason, I put the wrong transition in, folks. But if you want to see that, I'll have it available for a love offering. <laughs> anyway, Greg and Danielle came to our ministry um, probably 2007, was it, or 2008. And uh, he was fresh out of graduate school, had gotten his degree, and Danielle, sweet wife, fairly recently married, and, and I think they came to change the world, just like I did. Turns out God does a lot more to sometimes change us and make us ready for what's in the future. And uh, we got to bump shoulders for three years so that were special years, and I deeply appreciate their investment. I married young, I married them old, I got to preach, I got to baptize, I was able to be involved in ministry. I had everything from the opportunity to teach Hebrew and Greek and Bible college and seminary level stuff and also to pastor which gave me a perspective I needed. Uh, as a seminary guy, you can sometimes get a very theoretical knowledge of what's right and wrong, and you kind of lose perspective sometimes of where people are in life. There are bigger truths and lesser truths. There are weightier matters of the law. There, there are garden vegetable tithes, and there's judgment and mercy and faith and the love of God, and you gotta get that down especially when you come from an academic background. And so it was so helpful to me to learn that while all truth is equally true, all truth is not equally important. And there are anthills and there are mountains, and you die on mountains, and sometimes you just do what's best for people. Somebody in the middle of a real hardship needs to be ministered to more than they need to know what you know. Uh, missions Conference 2019, this guy Joe Valentin showed up, and I had pizza with him, and I'm sharing something from Psalm 22 about the text, and he's all excited, but he's excited for a different reason than I thought, and they had a need for some Old Testament translation consultants, so he asked me if I'd volunteer part-time. I was like, yeah, I'd love it, and so I'm talking to my wife, and she goes, yeah, Bonnie was talking to me at lunch, and I thought, Ron would love that. Before it was over, we were there visiting BI to find out if we would fit. And in our journey over, we'd done all the paperwork to join with Baptist Mid-Missions because we thought it was going to be a fit. And at the end of our week with Bibles International, we met with a council from Baptist Mid-Missions who had come over from Cleveland to be there on purpose for it. And we were interrogated to make sure we were doctrinally sound. And because my wife was there, they gave us a thumbs up and passed us. She did great. She was so nervous. And it was just so much fun. We could see we were with our people. Uh, Bible translation 
was something I was unfamiliar with and the need for it. I realized there are 7,361 known languages in the world, and yet only 683 of them have a full Bible and a New Testament in 1,534. So basically, if you put it in percentage terms, less than 10% have a full Bible of all the languages in the world. And we in English have, I don't know, a couple hundred translations, and some languages have not even one. 21% have a New Testament. 15% have other portions, like maybe the Gospels and maybe the Psalms. But a full 55% have nothing. And I thought, wow, I had no idea. So uh, the realization of how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard or read. And the importance of having a Bible in your tongue was a huge deal. So I visited for this Haitian Creole workshop and realized this is good for us. We joined on. We were at uh, candidate school the next month. And at the very end of that month, we found ourselves being uh, sent out by, we were commissioned by BMM, sent out by Tri-City, and we were on a journey. And so our translation group had started with one translation in Brazil in 1981, and now there were 45 projects that were currently active in 17 countries. And the one that we got connected with was in Ghana, the Vigati. I also now am connected with the Wali. I'm also connected with the Haitian Creole, but my priority is the Vigati. A missionary and his wife served there for 50 years, laying all the groundwork for this so that they could uh, put together a language and put together a translation and a mother tongue. I mean, they gathered the vocabulary for a dictionary. They mapped the grammar. They mapped the tonality because the difference between a word with one tone and another tone can be, what's your name? And the other one's so embarrassing, I can't tell you. But it's very important that you recognize tone. Uh, my wife and I now sent out, we began to visit churches. And this is my dear wife. She's a very special lady. Found out that uh, God was really good to me. And she's been alongside the whole journey. She's always ministered with me alongside in our ministry. And now she's actually volunteering in the home office as uh, executive secretary for two main departments, Joe Valentin's projects department and Troy Manning's text development. In a sense, she works and controls whether or not I get back in the country or not. So if you guys ever hear that I'm caught in Ghana, check with my wife, make sure we're good. Because <laughs> she makes arrangements for my visas and all my plane tickets and the rest. So anyway, she's just such a treasure. We took our first trip to Ghana in 2020, stayed at a guest house in Accra. I took this shot thinking it would be unique. Turns out it's everywhere, it's not unique at all, it's normal. Some of these ladies can carry a Volkswagen on their head. <laughs> uh, I mean, a whole lot of lumber and, and sticks for fires, and it's pretty amazing. And so we, we then went to Accra, which is the capital city, so right on the coast there's some civilization. Luke, our facilitator, is involved in this. Uh, he's quite a gifted man, but he does all the negotiations because uh, 
he knows the value of money in the culture and I don't. And so he helps me a lot. I'm getting better, but my first trip I had no idea. You know, I didn't realize the exchange rate. In those days, uh, it was pretty significant. Now it's twice as bad. I can buy twice as much in Ghana as I used to be able to because their economy's fallen apart. They have nothing. We took a bus ride. It was uh, 14 hours. It was overnight, and it had three bathroom breaks, one of which had an actual bathroom building. <laughs> the rest are just alongside the road in a ditch, whatever, because that's what you do. And especially in those days, they were sending armed security guards there because the country was especially impoverished, and impoverishment's a great motivator for crime. So they didn't stop in the same place all the time, so there was no pattern on where to rob someone. Uh, we actually started way down here along the coast, and so we're in Accra when we start. We take this bus route all the way up here to the city of Wa in the upper left-hand corner, and that's a very large city, and I have a lot of connections there now in things that I do and places I preach and the rest. And then Laura was ultimately where we work on the Degari. And it's up here right next to Burkina Faso, where if you're, if you're proselytizing or meeting in church, they will kill you because it's illegal and they don't want unrest. And because the uh, Islamic worshipers there don't, don't necessarily rest well when there's Christians practicing, they eliminate that threat from the government. And, but in this country, it's totally great. Everybody coexists, but I can't go across the river without a risk of something less healthy. So we arrive in Wa, and it's there that I meet Hamadou, a translator, who is paralyzed from the waist down. He began to lose his limb, uh, the control of his lower limbs when he was about 12. By the time he was 18, they were frozen, rigid, and solid. Probably just some form of arthritis that in the States he would have had a cure for. But now, as a result of his immobility, he's become a Bible translator for many years and an expert. And so I work with Hamadou. He's quite a unique, gracious, kind man. And uh, very good with his mother tongue. Here's what I was called to do. They had a translation, but Ghana had come up with their own orthography. The translation initially reflected on your left side of your screen up there was kind of European-based. And it really didn't follow what the Ghanaians wanted, and especially when they came up with an official orthography. So these words that you see in blue boxes or red boxes or the green box are all the same words now, but in this new orthography. And it's not real regular. And so studying the language for a while, I was able to come up with a, a grid of scripts that I worked with a computer programmer on. Got online, we wrote it a line at a time. He did all the programming and for six hours. And at the end of six hours, he converted the entire Bible all 66 books with a 67th glossary. And the whole thing was done. And there was one mistake in all of it that we corrected by hand because the word was so unique. But that was really an answer to our prayers. And so now 
I got to meet Timothy Sedu. He's a very influential pastor in the area. And everybody looks to him for leadership, partly because he comes from this royalty clan. So he's kind of the family of a chief, yet he's a pastor. And he's a very relaxed man. He's not, he's not a guy that you would think is in any way after power or anything. He's a very godly, good leader. And the rest of the pastors look to him for leadership. This was my ride with Pastor Moses. This thing is the... This is called a shoe. It's a kombu, which is in the language a shoe. It's shaped like a shoe. There's one seat in front with one wheel, two wheels in back. Probably has all of 11 horsepower. And you get in the back, and you're riding down the road just having a great time. And he's my transportation, Pastor Moses. I also preached in his church. But uh, he took me everywhere I needed to go. And it's kind of fun. It's it's almost like riding with Pastor Baker on his four-wheeler. And so here we are in Wa, and after a, a little bit of Wa, you're going to get a view of what it looks like uh, on the way to Laura. Laura's actually, we're moving away from the city into nothingness. The roads are bad. This is not the worst part, but it's a shot I got. They kind of drive on wherever there's no holes. And so when we arrived in Laura, uh, we showed up in town, and this is really the big city. And so there's goats and cattle everywhere. All the houses are kind of made of this rough red clay, sometimes coated with a coating to protect it from the rains, with tin roofs held on by rocks or tires or something to weight them down. And this is the city. It gets a little bit less civilized as you get away from there. Uh, this is Super Walmart. <laughs> but they have everything there, and I mean everything. You can buy uh, two flip-flops that are both left-footed in the same package, which I did. <laughs> uh, when we arrived, this lady was uh, tasked with being our hostess. She was aware of our need for a modified diet so that we would be able to minister for two weeks instead of spend that two weeks in the bathroom. So Joanna was very specific for our needs, plus gave us a taste of the uh, Ghanaian cuisine. And, you know, everything is something like rice, which is not like our rice. It grows wild. It looks like a weed. Or Fufu, which is this hard yam, and there's always something that you break off and dip in some soup stuff, and it's, you know, pretty interesting. I've gotten a taste for what it's called banku. I kind of like that one, but it makes you real tired after you eat it. It's like <laughs> and I'm not sure if it's because it's fermented or not, but it is fermented, but it's not alcoholic fermented. It's more like vinegar-based or something, but it's like eating a lot of turkey at Thanksgiving. You just want to go sleep it off. And so here's the uh, prayer call that occurs four times a day, no matter where you are in the country, because there are Islamics, and there are Christians, and there is old African worship. And so you get used to that, and... You know, I love this shot because of the romantic moonlight glistening off the razor wire on the wall there. It's just real pretty. And 
So here I am at the uh, Laura Baptist Church. It really was funded by a lot of American money. They can't afford a church like this. And uh, the pastor there, his name is Pastor Elijah. He's a firecracker of a guy, and one of us eats twice as much as the other one. And it's not the guy you think. <laughs> and uh, so he's been part of my connection. Mr. Joseph was sick with COVID but got over it, and uh, he was employed by the government. So he's very instrumental. We worked on training our translators. We were able to get a room inside of a hotel where they had some air conditioning. Sylvester is our wordsmith. He's from royalty. And so he's influential. He knows a lot about words, and he travels to the villages to make sure he gets them right. And then Stephen is more pastoral. He's actually pastoring a church, Tancheta, which is about 45 minutes away every Sunday. He drives there. And Mr. Joseph is an educator who's retired, but his influence in this project is important. And then Chief Christopher, who is an expert in the language, educated and influential. He's uh, aging, and I'm not sure how old he is. He doesn't know either. There are no records. What we do as Bible translators is we try and help them by ensuring the accuracy of their translations. So we have semantic domains of words like when you come to the Bible, you realize some words are far more important than others. Pastor Baker was talking about a stick this morning in Sunday school and the possibilities for translating, you know. In fact, it brought something to mind. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod being the club to kill a wolf or a bear with and the staff being the shepherd's crook to provide correction. It's gentle. I think in my generation, we grew up with fathers who liked that club more than that staff, but understanding the difference is a big deal. Well, they don't necessarily understand because they start with an English translation, or if they're in another part of the world, they're, they're all bilingual, so they start with what they know. We come alongside to help them by ensuring they're reflecting the accurate Hebrew and Greek and whatever it is that's underlying possibly Aramaic, so that we're guarding their accuracy. They know how to say it in their tongue. They know that language well. What they don't know is what the terms are behind the English translation. And in fact, their, view, their understanding of English is frequently kind of limited. So we develop a semantic domain. We say, OK, there are words for law in your language. What are they? And they put a list together, just like you collected this morning, a whole list of terms in their language for stick, but in this case, law. And then we take those words, and we, beside them, put the Hebrew terms in the Old Testament. And then we define each of those terms, one at a time, go through it. And then we go back and start at the top of the list. And in their minds, they've already matched one of their terms with the word Torah teaching, instruction, or mishpat, which actually is broader. It's a little more complex, but like judgment or justice or shall not, all the, shall not the judge of all the earth do mishpat, what is right, or a custom. And they have words to match the senses of mishpat, which we list. 
We come to a word like mitzvah, commandment. Well, that's a word that's going to have authority in it, in a term for law, etc. So we match their, their vocabulary, their semantic domain with the Hebrew domain. And as soon as we define that in our software, it will automatically expect that word to be translated the same way in every successive verse. Now, it won't always be. You'll sometimes look at a context and say, actually, there's a second sense here we need to capture. But this exponentially increases our ability to proceed through Bible translation and guarantee accuracy. We do that with sin terms, which are really important. And you guys know, what, what is sin? What is your, uh, what did you teach your kids sin is? To miss the mark, right? Okay, there is that word. And then there's the word iniquity, which is what's bent or twisted. And so we try and help them with their words to match them to the Hebrew or in the New Testament to the Greek. So then we try and help them with words they don't have. Like, you know, you guys get a lot of snow here in Utah, right? You couldn't ski without it. <laughs> they don't even know what snow is. So when you come to a, a translation that involves the word snow, what do you do? Well, because of the internet and stuff, they have a conception. But sometimes you have to come up with a word that they don't already have in their language. And these are some of the ways we teach them to do that. So I'm teaching semantic domains, the use of antonyms. Terry was developing the Flex Dictionary. We were trying to help them with book introductions because their Bible may be the only tool they have. So a good introduction to a Bible book is very valuable to them. We have some boilerplate text, and we just it's done by the theological experts. So it's good for them because it's simple and precise and a good study aid. But if all you get is a Bible, and that's all you ever have, having some study tools is really important. Uh, listening to them discuss their terms is a blast. And they're working on consensus in matching these terms with their words. So we define a Hebrew word, and they talk about what's best. And then they'll come to consensus, and they write it on their list. And so we end up with a translation. Take a walk through the village with me. I just want you to see Ghana. And this was his dad's home. We're, we're actually going through some of the main streets of town. You might call this Main Street. And um, you can see the homes are made of this mud cut out of the ground. But they have these satellite dishes. And it's like, yeah, we got the basic necessities of life. We got the mud house, no bathroom, and a satellite dish. And you can see Islamic people walking by. And there's no hostility. It's just there's no closeness. By the way, it turns out roosters crow all day and all night. I thought it was just in the morning. And you can hear in the background the drums and the xylophone drums of the funeral. We're on our way to a funeral. 
We're going to visit some uh, families on the way because you need to stop and talk. And so we're going to meet some triplets. There are actually lots of triplets in this community. And they're playing with their great toy from Toys R Us, banding strap off of the skids of a truck. <laughs> and they're kind of happy because they don't know any different. Uh, you're going to meet some ladies who are just a hoot. I've stayed in connection with them, though one of them died. She had a really bad broken arm, you can see. And that's health care. And... Uh, but she was a hoot. She just... <laughs> and that was it. So there you go. <laughs> Not exactly health care, but that's what they had. Uh, she actually got it fixed, fell on it again, broke it, and they wouldn't fix it again. So it was, that's how it was. And she died. Last time I was there, I looked for her. And so we actually take a trip to the regent's house, and he lives in pretty good comfort. You can see this big home in the distance where he lives, because he's royalty. And so he gets kind of a nice place. And here's the funeral. And this goes on for three days nonstop. Those drums play. They are on a rotation basis, and they're playing those drums all night long. And they have some participants who are pagan because you would never exclude the community because it's way too important it's totally rude to exclude the community but you can have your christian practices but one of your relatives or clan members may do something else like cut the head off a goat and here's church and i preached there several times and uh, greeting them in their mother tongue was like this big deal. And they kind of laughed and loved it. And they're just great people. I just love these folks. And so, you know, we're doing paratext training. And the software looks like this. It's very complex, but it's very helpful for what we do. Those orange areas are where you have a verse that doesn't have that word translated as we've expected it, and we will therefore deal with it. If it's, if it's to be translated the same way, we'll have to change it in the text to ensure accuracy. If it has another sense we need to add, we'll add it here. But we do a lot of work to ensure accuracy. I get to preach, and um, they look forward to someone from out of the country my wife and I stopped in front of a Boab tree, which you have no conception of how big that thing is. We went to the pastor's house to have Fufu. His wife made us a wonderful dish. And um, you eat with your hands, only your right hand. It's a very offensive to use the left hand for anything. In fact, I was talking to the pastor after service one day. A mother brought her child up and said to shake hands with the pastor, and the child reached out with his left hand, and boy, he thought that it was a crime. The mother slapped that down quicker than you can imagine. 
because it actually is very offensive. It would be almost like flipping the bird, flipping a finger at someone in our country. And if you don't know that, it can hinder your ability to minister. So learning the people and their customs is a big deal. And so, you know, at the end of our training, we give them awards to let them know that they've achieved something. And uh, so here's our team, Mr. Christopher, Stephen, Sylvester, and Mr. Luke. And Anna, the back translator, is a nurse. They're professional people, very gifted, very skilled. They don't need me for what they do, except for the accuracy I can help them with. They are very good at their language. And we work together as a team. We make sure that we build ownership in how we train them because we want them to own this Bible and have pride in it so that it has a lifespan. You know, you can go over there and spend three years, spit out a Bible, give it to them, and it will never be used because you've just given them something they don't appreciate and they didn't have a part in. There's no ownership. So you develop that ownership you make sure they're invested in it and that the churches are all participating and using it so that you can have a history with it. So there's way more to what I get to do, but it's kind of background stuff alongside ensuring the accuracy. Plus, we bring the tools to them that they need for the publication. And so I had a great time with the kids. Turns out showing them the magic trick that looks like I'm taking my finger off they believe in magic. They screamed and ran away. <laughs> Best fun ever. <laughs> and the funny thing was, this guy was in my Greek class. I taught Greek to back at Bob Jones in 1988. He came to me the last day of class. And in his bombastic way, Mr. Weber, you must come to Ghana and teach my people. We kind of connected. And of course, I gave him the obligatory, if the Lord wants me there, I'll be there, not ever thinking this was going to happen. But when I showed up in Ghana, Mr. Luke, the guy who plays the part in the prison movie where he can connect and provide with anything, he just has all these resources. He arranges for dinner for me as a surprise with Dr. Seth Mohinu, a guy who asked me to come to Ghana and teach his people. And it's just amazing to see what God has done. In 1986, when I got married, I finally came to the point in my life where I wrote in my Bible, anything you want, God. And that was a hard decision to come to. And here's why. I said, I'm scared to death God's going to send me to Africa. <laughs> and I got there, and it's like, this is the biggest adventure of my life. It's amazing. I get to go to Africa. And I get to eat weird foods. And of course, I have a return ticket, so it's easier to come back, and it makes it an adventure, but it's a blast. I am so happy and thankful I get to do this. And I think I feel, in many ways, the same way Pastor Baker feels about getting to be here with you guys in this beautiful area. A few of you might be a little tough to put up with, but for the rest, I think you're fine. <laughs> it's just been such a joy 
to discover in the process, trying to go to Bithynia or to Mycenae or wherever to try to serve. But in the process, God puts you where he wants you. And it's a place that he prepares you to be where you can enjoy and serve. And so, Greg, we were going to change the world. Turns out God was going to change us. And we get to do this. Whatever God calls you to, don't be afraid of it. It's amazing to get to do what God actually prepares for you. And the funny thing about the omniscience of God is, Him knowing everything, He knows what's going to make you happy. Right? And we can trust Him. Just take the first step in the direction of whatever God reveals to you in His Word. Go disciple the nations. You don't have to go to Ghana. Just go next door. Be amazing where you'll see God lead you, right? You might find yourself in Utah or Ghana or New York or Mexico. You might find yourself anywhere where God knows you're going to be so content and fulfilled and happy and blessed. And that, things I've learned. The old guy. And uh, maybe don't take as long as I took to learn it. Thanks so much for letting me be here with you.